in a recent summer night, I found myself standing on a front porch much like the one in this picture. Uh, I was standing in the Class A dress uniform of the police chaplaincy in which I serve in our community. I was flanked on either side by military officers also dressed in their Class A uniforms. And none of us knew the homeowners, and it was dark. It was past the time when you walk up to front doors of people that you do not know. It was dark, and we were bringing dark and devastating news that their child had died. That moment burned into my heart this crystal clear truth that at some point, often at a very unexpected point, suffering comes to everyone's front door. We're in a message series here at Grace called I Doubt It, A Skeptic's Guide to Christianity. And today we're going to be dealing with the question, what about suffering? It's a question that actually came to many of our minds last Sunday during Easter worship as we began to hear news of the bombings in Sri Lanka. It's a question that may have come to your mind last night or this morning when you heard about the synagogue shooting in California. And you see, we believe that our belief in Jesus has to deal with the real questions of our world. So whether it's about Sri Lanka or California or your own front door, suffering is not just a philosophical issue. Suffering is a personal struggle because in the real world, suffering is about pain that needs comfort. Suffering is not just an intellectual issue, a philosophical issue, a theoretical issue. It's a feeling that we have about our mom or our dad or our son or daughter or brother or aunt or friend or coworker. It's a feeling about illness or death or poverty or disaster or rape or abuse or violence. And today I want to offer some Christian perspective on that struggle with suffering. I'm not gonna bring you easy answers, but I hope to bring you a framework of understanding. And as I do that, I want to give a big shout out to Grace Ann Arbor West, especially to you folks at Grace Ann Arbor West who are suffering this morning, and to anyone who's listening or tuning in and struggling with suffering. I have a special pastoral note as I begin, because I know that on many levels, your suffering pushes you to questions about why. But in my experience of suffering and the experience of people around me, there's a deeper level of heart cry, and that is not the question why, but more of the cry of help, this hurts. And so if that's you, if you're struggling with suffering right now, can I just tell you that you're not alone? And that may be hard to believe. It's hard to believe because suffering isolates. Suffering isolates, but comfort brings us together. So this verse from the Bible, God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others, is actually deeply woven into our sense of mission here at Grace. Here at Grace, we're less about religious actions and more about being here for each other with the power of Jesus. Our leader, Jesus, overcame death itself in order to be with us. That's what Easter is about. And we believe that Jesus' power for life is here right now, today, for you. But I understand that can be hard to believe. 
And belief itself is actually where I want to pick up with some perspective on suffering. For many folks, the existence of suffering, their own or others, leads to a very common question. There was a national poll taken a few years back, and the national poll was, if you could ask God one question, and you knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the number one response to that poll was, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Now, skeptics take that question a step further. I like talking to skeptics. Skeptics are people with deep doubts or deeper questions about truth claims. And actually, I like talking to them because I think I may be talking to the next Apostle Thomas. You know, Thomas was a skeptic. He said, Lord, unless I see the marks on your body from the crucifixion, I'm not going to believe. And in some church traditions, this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, is called Thomas Sunday. It's like Skeptics Day. So if you're a skeptic, well, Welcome here, Uh, you're in good company. Uh, So the skeptics take this question and they, they refine it to a statement, if God does exist, God is either not good enough to care about suffering or not powerful enough to end it. Now this idea started way back in the years before Christ with Epicurus in 300 BC. It was refined by the philosopher Hume in the 18th century. And then in the 20th and 21st century, it's been given new voice by people like J.L. Mackey or Stephen Fry or Christopher Hitchens. And the skeptic in me is somewhat sympathetic with that statement. Suffering came to our front door, to my front door, in the form of a medical diagnosis of our oldest daughter, Christine. She was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, and our suffering, my suffering, was the suffering of a parent watching a child with an incurable and progressive muscular wasting disease. What that means is that over the last 25 to 30 years, she's 28 or 29 this year, sorry Christine if I didn't get that quite right, but uh, I saw Christine go from walking to using a wheelchair to having to have a ventilator to help her breathe. I watched her go through several surgeries, including two major ones and all the complications with them. I watched her go from being somewhat independent to needing help with all of her activities of daily living, from dealing with her teeth to toileting. Somehow in the midst of all that, she managed to graduate from college with a bachelor's degree in linguistics and get into a doctoral program. But then at that point, the disability just became a little bit too much and she withdrew from the program. The question is, for us, how, how did we deal with that? How would you deal with that if that was your son or daughter? How would you deal with that thoughtfully? Not with trite, easy answers or six quick steps to fix your life up, but, but how do you deal with that? It's an important question, and it's also not uh, just a Christian question. It, suffering itself is not just a Christian problem. Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, talks about this. He says, if you're a skeptic, what's your answer to the question, what about suffering? What's the answer if you're a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist? This isn't just a Christian question. And if you look at Mark's book or Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, you can actually see much of their thinking reflecting in what I shared here. So I want to just briefly take a minute to consider some other options for dealing with suffering besides the Christian perspective. And I'm going to go quickly, and I don't mean any disrespect to these other viewpoints. I'm just going to kind of move through them given our time constraints. First, Hinduism. There's a lot of different schools of Hinduism, but almost all affirm the idea of karma. That is, you get what's coming to you. You you all can, can finish this sentence with me, right? What goes around 
comes around, right? That's karma. Suffering exists because you have either in the past or presently somehow displeased the universe and failed and now it's time for payback. Now we kind of like karma, especially when it comes to other people getting what we think they deserve. We love karma that way. We might want to write a note like this, dear karma, I have a list of people that you missed. But the skeptic in me finds karma a little dissatisfying because it actually justifies and legitimizes suffering because suffering is your fault. You deserve it. And so some Christians actually teach this wrongly. They teach that if you claim a certain kind of promise or live a certain way, you won't experience suffering. And in fact, if you do experience suffering, it's because you've sinned in some way. So in our experience, either Deb or I or our daughter somehow sinned, and that's why she's disabled. We weren't living God's way. And again, the skeptic in me is like, that just doesn't hold up. At the time of her diagnosis, we were missionaries serving in our mission field, working with college students. We were living by faith, trusting God to provide for all of our financial resources. We had both given up a lot, sacrificed a lot, moved to this new place. Uh, We really didn't deserve that. You couldn't really make that case. And in fact, Jesus actually teaches against this view of karma. Uh, Some folks came to him at one point about a man who was born blind, and they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Another approach to suffering is with Buddhism. There's, again, there's a lot of different schools and approaches to Buddhism, but almost all teach that suffering is an illusion. It doesn't really exist, and you need to engage in a process of denial. Now, again, some of us really like denial. It's a state we live in all the time, especially on Mondays when we're trying to grab our coffee and pretend like we went to bed at the right time over the weekend when we know that we didn't. Now, some Christian circles actually teach wrongly a form of suffering being just an illusion. They teach that you should never make a negative confession about an illness, that if you say a word like cancer, you're taking something that doesn't exist and giving it power through your words. So you need to kind of deny that that illness exists. Tragically, in my own ministry, I've been around a couple different family situations in places that I've served where children have been told they can't say the words that their parents are sick when their parents are sick with cancer and dying. The children were forbidden to say the word or acknowledge that right up until the parents died. And you can imagine the tragedy unfolding in their hearts and minds as they came to terms with this because the skeptic in me and the skeptic in you knows that denying reality doesn't make it real. In our case, my daughter has muscular dystrophy. I can't really deny that. It's right there in front of me. And I believe that healing is possible, not by denying the reality of disease. And that's actually not what Jesus taught either. To his closest followers, he said, in the world, you will have trouble. That is suffering, affliction, difficulty, temptation. You're gonna experience this. Jesus never said that wouldn't be there for his followers. 
Islam teaches something different. It teaches that suffering is the will of Allah. This is called religious determinism. And Christians, some Christians actually wrongly teach a version of that. They would teach me that my daughter's disability is God's determined plan. And so I should thank him for that. But the skeptic in me says, what kind of God would plan that or determine that? Not a God that I want to pray to. I I can't really pray to a God like that. I can't accept that that God determined for Christine and for Deb and I and the rest of my family to suffer in that way. Especially because Jesus taught a different viewpoint on God. Jesus taught that God is our heavenly father, that he's good. He said, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And listen to this, aren't you more valuable to him than they are. Atheism teaches something different. Atheism takes my skepticism and extrapolates out from that and says, yeah, suffering exists, so God doesn't. Suffering, according to the atheist, disproves God's existence. Some atheists will say that suffering is the bedrock of atheism. So they would say to me, your daughter suffers because of bad genetics, and so she's in a Darwinian survival struggle, and God doesn't figure into that. My vantage point is that atheists themselves are not actually skeptics. They don't question God's existence. Instead, they're certain that the God they don't believe in isn't there. They're certain that the God they don't believe in isn't there. But the skeptic in me thinks something different. The skeptic in me thinks, well, uh, the existence of suffering doesn't logically disprove the existence of God. It actually, it raises questions about God, uh, and, and those questions lead me to what's coming next, which is some suggestions to explore a Christian perspective on suffering. Now, I'm not gonna follow every twist and turn possible here or answer all objections, but I do wanna give us a little bit of a framework to work from. And the the first one is this, explore assumptions. Explore assumptions, that means question our questions. When we do that, we might be surprised to discover that the existence of suffering may lead to evidence for God's existence. The existence of suffering may lead to evidence for God's existence. So uh, one noted Christian writer and philosopher, C.S. Lewis, had rejected belief in God because of suffering, but then realized the existence of suffering and evil became more problematic for his atheism. This is what he said. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? What he's giving voice to is that there's an almost universal acceptance that that suffering is bad. And so uh, we have an assumption about good and bad and evil and wrong and suffering and not suffering. And the question is, where do we get those standards and assumptions? Now, if we explore those questions very deeply, soon we'll come to the second thing that I would uh, uh, recommend for dealing with suffering, and that is to explore the Bible. Explore the Bible. When you do, what you find out is that suffering is at the heart of God's story. Here's a great passage uh, that gives a little bit of the framework for what that looks like. It's from Romans 8. It's verses 18 to 28. You can follow along on the screen as I read through it. 
Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. And if you keep reading through, you hear this. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. I hope you heard as I read through that Uh, Words like suffer and groaning and weakness. This tells us that the Bible owns the impact of suffering so we can fully own our own experience of suffering. And I'd like to unpack what this means for just a minute because it actually means a great deal. The Bible's view of suffering freed my wife and I in our marriage and freed my children in our parenting a great deal from a lot of aspects of suffering because of this truth. This truth is that suffering can shape your life, but it doesn't have to define who you are. Suffering can shape your life, but it doesn't have to define who you are. Because the Bible owns suffering, we can own suffering, and we don't have to be owned by it. This is so important. My daughter is not muscular dystrophy. She is my daughter. And more importantly, she is a child of God. That's her identity. I hope you heard that as I read through this passage. Three times children of God are mentioned. Three times the word father is mentioned for God because for Jesus' follower, the deepest core of our identity is rooted in our creator. And so as my daughter was little and as her siblings and her grew up, we talked to her a lot about her disease and told her everything that we could know and understand. We said to her things like, Christine, your disease is not your fault. You didn't cause this. You didn't warrant this. You didn't deserve this. And we said this to her brothers and sisters over and over and over again. Because as kids are growing up and their identity is being shaped and formed, If they encounter illness, life challenge, struggle, abuse, neglect, difficulty, challenge, suffering, their identity is informed and they just assume it's their fault, that somehow they're responsible for it, that somehow they have to take care of that. And our responsibility as parents, not just for Deb and I as a married couple, but also for our children is to say our family is centered on and rooted in the love of God as our creator. That's where our identity is. 
We're not defined in terms of our identity by struggles and suffering. It's not our fault. God loves us. God's at work in us. God has good things in store for us. And if you can see beyond just my personal family experience, what you see in the Bible's view of suffering is that suffering is not what God intends. And that's so important to wrap your heart and mind around because so often when it comes to the issue of suffering and struggle in our world, the conversation is centered on an assumption that what we experience in suffering is somehow what God planned or intended. But that is not true. In the passage that I read, even creation itself is groaning under the weight and burden of suffering. The Bible's view is that the world is broken and imperfect and not functioning in the way that God intended or designed. And that brokenness uh, is described by the word sin. Sin in the Bible is that infecting damage that is deep in the spiritual DNA of our world. It's not so much a list of naughty behaviors, but it's something about the reality of the way things are right Right now, things are broken. And the Bible's view of that brokenness or that suffering is that God did not intend or plan that and that he actually moves to address it and deal with it. And that leads to the third suggestion I have to deal with the question of what about suffering, and that is to explore Jesus' story. In the passage that I read, uh, it talked about We believers. Believers in the second half of the Bible are people who believe personally in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's who a believer is. And part of that belief includes understanding that Jesus suffered, that Jesus, God in the flesh, suffered on the cross and died. And so in the scriptures we see uh, this statement about Jesus' suffering. It says, Jesus bore our pain, he bore our suffering. And Jesus, when he was on the cross himself, cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even as he was suffering to death and suffered into death and ultimately then triumphed over that. That's what we celebrate in the resurrection and Easter. So the question is, how does this relate to the poll question of why is there so much suffering or the skeptical refinement of it? Isn't God good enough to care about suffering? Isn't he powerful enough to deal with suffering in our world? First, this tells us, Jesus' cry on the cross tells us, allows us, invites us to call out why to God ourselves while we recognize that there's a gap in our understanding. In other words, all of God's reasons and rationale may not be knowable at this time. John Dixon writes about this, and he says, the atheist may dismiss this as the God's ways are mysterious cliche, but it is surely just cool logic. God is all-knowing, and we are not. So there's an obvious knowledge gap to recognize. And it's important for us to recognize that, that not completely understanding why doesn't mean there are no answers. We don't know them all right now, and we're comfortable with leaving that not knowing to God because God is God and we're not. Now the atheist may say the reason we don't have those answers is the answers aren't there, but that actually can't be proven, at least logically. And 
the picture of God on the cross puts suffering into a plausible framework that includes belief in God. And here's what that framework is, and it doesn't answer all of the questions, but it does answer some. The framework is this. God's goodness, his caring, his love is seen on the cross, and his power to intervene in suffering is shown in the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection show the beginning of God's intervention into the brokenness of our world. So Dixon writes about this. He says, the cross tells us God's self-giving love for his creatures is primary, and the resurrection is God's pledge to breathe new life where there is death, to restore all things to a just and whole outcome to the satisfaction of everyone. And believers in Jesus receive as part of that pledge God himself, the Holy Spirit, in their hearts. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter in the second half of the Bible because God comforts those who are suffering. God comforts us in our suffering. Now, as a good parent of a disabled child, I had a long conversation with my daughter before I shared about her situation, and I was talking with her about what I was going to say. And she said to me, and, and before I say this, I just have to share with you, she, part of her challenge right now, and due to complications to her disease, is that she has a lot of sleepless nights with significant discomfort. And she said to me, you know, in those times when I'm awake all night and I, I literally can't sleep because of pain and discomfort, I know that Jesus is with me. I know that Jesus feels and understands that hurt. And that comforts her. I don't know uh, for you, if, if you know that Jesus feels and knows and understands what a sleepless night is. He knows and understands what that pain is. I, I hope that that can encourage you because that actually leads to the fourth thing I want to suggest this morning, and, and that's this, to explore hope. Part of the Christian view of suffering is that there's hope for those who suffer. That was a theme in all that I read, but, but even in the last couple verses, it says, we were given this hope when we were saved. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. You see, our belief about hope is that God's power means that he can bring about good for us right in the midst of difficult suffering. If you're a skeptic, you might say, that's not likely. But you don't have to take my word for it or my daughter's word for it. Uh, there's a writer named James Rorden. He is a New York Times bestselling writer and worked with the Bishop of Rwanda on a book uh, in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. Listen to what he says. He says, what I learned in Rwanda was that God is not absent when great evil is unleashed. Whether that evil is man-made or helped along by darker forces, God is right there, saving those who respond to his urging and trying to heal the rest. What he's saying there to us, what our passage says to us, is that suffering isolates, but it doesn't have the power to isolate us from God. God's power is that he's present with us in our suffering 
And also that that's not the end of the story. He will continue to be with us even through the end of our suffering to a time when suffering is over. That is the biblical vision for heaven. That's why the word glory showed up in that passage that I just read. It's a picture of the resurrection life. The idea is that God can bring us right through the valley of the shadow of death into resurrection life. Now, if you're a skeptic in the dark of a sleepless, painful night or overwhelmed by senseless genocide or bad news on your own front porch, I have to say to you that God's people have counted on him to get them through and had hope. And it might be plausible for you to count on him too. And if you're a person who's suffering here this morning, I have to say to you that Jesus draws near to you right in that midst of the suffering, and we do too. That passage that I read to you ends with this great statement of promise that even though suffering isolates, it cannot isolate us from God. It says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us to conclude. God, many of us struggle deeply with suffering and need to know you're with us. All of us know someone who struggled with suffering in our family or at work or around the world. And God, for us, may you give us grace to come alongside those who are suffering or those who have deep skeptical questions with the comforting love of Jesus Christ even as you're with us now, with that same comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.